Welcome to episode 437 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, where lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And our normal disclaimer here at the outset, the views expressed here on the podcast do not reflect the opinions of our respective firms, organizations, clients, families, or of course, pets. They are entirely our own. And if you dislike or disagree with them, please blame us and only us. Joining me today for the news roundup, Michael Ellis, visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, formerly of House Intel Committee and NSC, among other government postings. David Chris, founder of Culper Partners and former head of my old professional home, National Security Division at the Department of Justice. And for those wondering what in the world is wrong with Stuart's voice, I am not Stuart Baker. I am Brian Fleming, National Security Partner at Steptoe & Johnson, formerly of DOJ's National Security Division. I can assure all the loyal listeners out there that Stuart is safe and sound, albeit at an undisclosed location that I cannot reveal. He will, however, be back for the next episode. And and David and Michael, if you would like to say a few words in Stuart's absence to, you know, to pay him due respect, please feel free before we get into the news roundup. Brian, I think you should have introduced it by saying, welcome to this new and upgraded version <laughs> of the CyberLaw podcast with the improved host because I'm sure it's going to be much better without without Stuart here. Do you hear that, Stuart? you hear that, brother? Okay. We're pulling for you. Enjoy your whatever vacation or other nonsense. I'm just glad that there are hardworking uh, lawyers, Steptoe and Johnson, like Brian, who are willing to put in the effort to keep this podcast going while, while Stuart is uh, relaxing on the beach. No, Stuart's on cross-country skis somewhere. I don't know if there's any. Sn- I don't know if there's any snow there, but there's cross-country skis involved. I'm sure skating With- on stilts or something like that. <laughs> yeah, please, please don't forget to tip your waiters. Um, right. Buy Stuart's book. So with that, why don't we jump into the news roundup? And the first story that we have this week is actually one that I'm sure all of us are going to have quite a bit to say. And this has been covered in a few places recently, including in. And Bloomberg and actually Michael and Stewart wrote a piece about this that was just published, I believe, last week. And that's FISA 702. And for those who are tracking at home, we are, of course, in the final year of the sunset of the current FISA 702 authorization. I was still at Justice the last time this was gearing up, so I remember how fun this was uh, the last go around. But I think there's obviously a lot of posturing and positioning and speculation about what the debate and the fight may look like this go around in terms of FISA 702 reauthorization. So maybe David, let me start with you since you're not on the record with a recent op-ed on this one, but I know have a lot of thoughts on this. What do you sort of see for this next year with respect to the 702 reauthorization fight? Well, I think it's going to be very rough sledding for the government, for the executive branch in getting renewal. I think a clean renewal, just a straight up reauthorization is vanishingly unlikely. The odds are vanishingly small. There's going to be a lot of other stuff thrown in here. And it kind of highlights, I think, broadly speaking, as a matter of like, you know, democratic theory, the importance of these kinds of sunset provisions, because they completely flip the power arrangement where the executive branch has to make the case every five years or whatever, for renewal, as opposed to just having an authority that's permanent, and then Congress or others would have to muster the energy to, you know, change the status quo to repeal an authority. So it it shows you just how important these things are. And in terms of what's going to happen here, I mean, there's just enormous headwinds for the renewal of the authority. Some of them are, in fact, linked to use of the authority or arguable misuse, particularly with respect to the idea that you can query U.S. person information. So, you know, 702 of the FISA Amendments Act is 
targeting non-U.S. persons who are reasonably believed to be abroad, but those non-U.S. persons sometimes have conversations with U.S. persons, and the enormous databases that you know have all the comms can be queried with U.S. person information to find what the U.S. persons have been doing talking to these targets. That's going to be an issue. It's been an issue before. There have been reforms before. There will be new ones. But I think here there's a sort of a broader suspicion, and some of it is associated with political realignments in the House that are also going to be in play. So I expect, as I said, very rough sledding, lots of different possibilities for change. It could end up somehow tied to limits on the use of commercial information as well. In other words, it could open up a broader set of debates around intelligence collection and use. So stay tuned. I think it's going to be a very uh, busy year in this front. I certainly agree with David that it's going to be rough sledding for the administration. And he's completely right that it does flip the power dynamic when there is a, a sunset of a critical national security authority. You might wonder why we, why Congress chose to place sunsets on these. I assume it's to retain more power over the reauthorization when, and be able to extract, you know, concessions on areas that Congress deems to be important when it, these renewal opportunities come around. But, you know, no one would suggest that we place sunsets on the tax code or on other, you know, sort of bedrock statutory authorities that the executive branch possesses, or at least, at least, at least no one is seriously suggesting those things. So it is a curious dynamic where every few years we find ourselves in this situation of a critical national security authority coming up for reauthorization and the question of what, what reforms, what, what tweaks will be necessary in order to secure the, that legislative approval. Here, I think it's going to have to go well beyond anything to do with FISA 702. The chief objections from many Republicans don't relate to use of 702 authorities. They relate in part to the use of other FISA authorities, Title I, or sometimes called traditional FISA during the 2016 presidential campaign and, and transition into the Trump administration. They relate to abuses of government power that have nothing to do with FISA, or can, I should say concerns about abuses of government power that have nothing to do with FISA, like the Disinformation Governance Board and the like. So I, I think that this reauthorization debate is going to turn into a much larger debate than just the question of what has the government been doing with 702 and are any reforms to that process necessary? Last week, there was also a hearing by the, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board that did a very good report on 702 a while ago and found there have been no significant abuses of the program. General Nakasone, uh, the director of NSA, testified at that, at that PCLOB hearing. And you know, there was some discussion of some, some small changes that they're looking at around the edges, switching default settings. So users have to you know, definitively approve a query in 702 repositories and better training and auditing. Those are all, you know, they all strike me as good, good things to do, good, good government moves. They are not going to be sufficient to, to change votes in the House. Um, it's going to be an uphill battle and there needs to be a lot more on the table. Well, let me ask the question, the critical question then, and I think you raise a good point, Michael, about perhaps this is this this go around, this just can't be decoupled from broader concerns or grievances that there may be now with respect to other authorities and, and you know, other things that have been debated and argued about in, in the past several years. The piece that you and Stuart put out obviously posited a few different types of reforms that might be worthwhile to consider, you know, whether it comes sort of on a bipartisan basis or or the the Republican controlled house. But let me ask the practical question in in terms of what do you think it's going to take? What types of perhaps critical reforms or agreements might we need to be looking for to ensure that this doesn't turn into a game of chicken that that drives the whole 702 program off the cliff? Yeah, I I should add 
that I think it probably will be a game of chicken because Congress uh, has a history of never really engaging in these kinds of reauthorization debates until the last minute. It's just it absolutely has to. Yeah. Yeah, there's always other legislative priorities. There's a limited quantity of floor time and capability for the body to really process this kind of debate. So I anticipate this will become a November-December problem, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of groundwork and legislative spade work that can be done between now and then. You know, Stuart and I in the op-ed talk about a number of, we call it sort of anti-partisanship uh, reforms. Because that, you know, I think really the, the problem that Republicans have keyed on here is the potential misuse of national security authorities to advance partisan objectives. And again, no one has pointed to any instances in which 702 has been used in that way. But there are, are real concerns that other parts of FISA have been used in that way, that other national security authorities have been have been misused for, for partisan gain. So you know, really, we, we lay out a couple ideas of particular reforms that could fall under that anti-partisanship partisanship umbrella, you know, mandatory investigations when there's a, a leak that appears directed at a domestic political target and you know, tighter controls on those intercepts that could lead to those leaks, applying the Hatch Act to former national security officials who retain a security clearance after they leave government and then can go on you know, media interviews and suggest you know, that they are privy to government secrets still by virtue of their clearances that lead to one partisan outcome over another. Those are just a few of the ideas. I think there will, there will likely be others on the menu as well. David, I'd be curious to get your two cents on any of those. And also as someone who used to sign off on FISAs and who used to oversee the apparatus at the Justice Department that was responsible for compliance and oversight, et cetera, related to kind of all things FISA, you know, just kind of what, what you think this might take or what the twists and turns are that may be ahead before perhaps a mad scramble at the end of the year. Yeah, I definitely agree there will be the usual game of chicken and brinksmanship and mad scramble and possibly a 30-day extension into January and you know all the usual stuff that is necessary to create the forcing function that uh, produces some kind of a result. And I and I also agree, I mean apart from reforms around 702 or even traditional FISA itself, I think on the table will be a whole host of broader questions. The idea of, you know, having mandatory review of leaks that that concern a domestic political player, I mean, to me, make a lot of sense, at least in general. I haven't carefully read Stewart's and Michael's piece, but the, you know, leaking of information for political gain is a very, you know, it's a common thing across a wide set of fronts, and it's not a good thing, no matter who is doing it. So I, I think some of those reforms could be baked in here. Part of the, I think part of the baseline for this will be some of the reforms that Attorney General Barr adopted as a matter of internal procedure uh, a couple of years back. And the Senate bill that, you know, only the most nerdy students of FISA will remember from when three other provisions of the law, not in the FISA Amendments Act, but of the traditional FISA, actually were allowed to sunset, which is an unusual thing. You know, usually these authorities are threatened with sunset and then there's a mad scramble and then there's some kind of negotiated deal. What happened a while back was that there was consensus between Jim Jordan and Bill Barr and the Dem leadership of the um, House committee back in the day. And then a Senate bill came in and was too strong for the administration to tolerate. There was some funny business around a presidential tweet, but the net result was that it just blew up and they just stopped and these three provisions sunset. But there's a host of reforms in that Senate bill that might be resurrected here. And 
you know, then there's going to have to be some clarifying work done around how FISA, you know, even traditional FISA cannot be used for domestic terrorism under any circumstances, because that's a concern that that could result in an overreach. So there may be some clarifications that emerge over time. But I think I share Michael's perspective. This thing is going to be a, a very open, maybe that's the most positive way to put it, a very open process in which many issues, not all of them related to the FISA Amendments Act, not all of them even related to FISA at all, are brought onto the table because there's a moment of leverage here and people who have ideas around reforms in other areas are not going to let that moment you know, go to waste. All right. Well, that's one we'll be keeping a close watch on. I'm sure the pod will be back on top of that at some point down the road as the mad scramble continues throughout the year. But with that, let's move on to our next story, which really focuses on, and I'll turn to Michael for this one, President Biden uh, put out a pretty high-profile op-ed last week in the Wall Street Journal just calling on bipartisan action with regard to big tech and certain things that he and the administration have been pushing for and that he's making the case would be in everybody's benefit. So, Michael, you know, what do you make of that in terms of the administration sort of putting that out now that we finally miraculously have a Congress in place that's up and running for the 118th? You know, a lot of speculation, obviously, that there's going to be a flurry of activity on the investigative side from the Republican-controlled House that's targeting big tech. But, you know, in terms of sort of that dynamic with the kind of call to action and some of the sort of substantive reforms that are at least have been swirling around now for quite some time, where do you sort of see things heading? It's an interesting issue with strange bedfellows taking on big tech because there's broad agreement, as President Biden pointed out in his Wall Street Journal op-ed, broad agreement between Republicans and Democrats on the dangers of an aggregation of power in a few large technology companies and a broad, I think, dissatisfaction with how the antitrust laws have been enforced against those companies over over the past several years. But you know, once you get past that that surface level broad dissatisfaction. When you dig down, it turns out that the Democrats and Republicans, I think, have vastly different reasons they are dissatisfied, which will make any legislative solution difficult to get through both houses of Congress in, in this coming year. Because you know, Republicans obviously have concerns about content moderation on the platforms and censorship of conservative voices over the past several years. Democrats come at content moderation with a very different perspective, dissatisfied that the platforms haven't gone far enough, by and large. To, to enforce certain moderation policies against against users of their platforms. So while, while there's this, this agreement in broad strokes that the, the big tech companies have too much power, I think it will prove more difficult to agree on what exactly is to be done about it. Now, there are a couple of vehicles, a couple of legislative you know, actions that have been on the table. You know, given that the bipartisan support was there last year for this Klobuchar-Grassley bill, for instance, on self-preferencing, for the open... App Markets Act, sponsored by, by Senator Blackburn, you know, that there's, there's been bipartisan agreement on some of these measures for a while, but you know, they didn't get over the finish line late last year in the year-end rush to enact legislation. And I, I find it curious, actually, that, that President Biden is, is using his bully pulpit now to urge action on these bills when he could have picked up the phone to Chuck Schumer last December and told him these bills are important. It's time to pass them in the Senate when when that opportunity was in front of him. So it's interesting to see the, the public position of the administration now pushing Congress to enact these legislative reforms. I think it's probably a little a little later than it needed to be if there was to be a realistic chance of these bills becoming law. 
So I'm maybe politically naive, but what did you guys make of the fact that the op-ed was in the Wall Street Journal by the president now? I mean, my sense was that maybe it reflected that his advisors see a genuine chance for a piece of legislation actually to be enacted. I mean, Michael described the sort of common feeling that something has to be done, but divergent senses of exactly what that something is leading to the usual kind of gridlock. And, and I sort of took it from the op-ed that the White House must think there is now a chance for a real consensus. So they put the op-ed out so the president could take credit for it later. And they wouldn't have done it if they thought it was hopeless. But maybe there's some other motivation there or some other angle that I'm just missing. Yeah, I think they're trying to increase the pressure on on the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, to to take up this legislation as well. You know, again, there was a sense, I think, at the end of last year that Republicans, you know, if they were to take over either chamber of Congress, that they would be less inclined to pursue this kind of antitrust reform. There's a lot of you know, traditional conservative thinking that just takes a more laissez-faire approach to, to antitrust enforcement and, and doesn't favor you know, granting more potentially unbridled power to enforce agencies like the FTC and DOJ. There's obviously a, a strain on the right now that, that takes a different view and is you know, less, less concerned with, with laissez-faire approach and wants to, wants to see more, more aggressive enforcement actions. And I, I think that the, the placement of the Wall Street Journal is a sign that the administration is targeting McCarthy and wants to, wants to up the pressure on him to, to sign on to this agenda that had previously attracted Again, bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate at the committee level, but hadn't hadn't made it to hadn't made it to the floor in the Senate, and you know there's still a, a sharp division among Republicans in the House on. Yeah, I would say I, I I tend to agree. I think this this does read to me like kind of a direct challenge to the Republican-controlled House to to sort of you know to rise up and and to do something in response to this this big issue. Also. You know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but one would think that if if something can't get done in the next 12 months, it's going to be in, very difficult to do in a presidential election year next year, where a lot of other things are going to be swirling around, and and perhaps people are going to be a little more dug in, and whatever the overlap in the Venn diagram is between Democrat and Republican agreement on this issue is is going to get narrower and narrower. So that's kind of how I read the timing in, in terms of publishing this now, just as, as the 118th is getting up and running. But, you know, we shall see. And, and obviously, as I, as I said at the outset as well, obviously a lot of, I think, expectation that there's going to be just a flurry of activities targeting big tech just from the House investigative committees and, you know, what that does and whether that moves the needle one way or the other to act or not act or to pick up various pieces of this, whether it be the antitrust piece or some of the other pieces. You know, I, I, I'm not, I don't have a great feel for sort of where the wind's blowing on that, but I think six months from now, it, it could look, could look quite a bit different. So I think time right. will tell. And, and purely as a prediction, not as a, not as a normative statement, I, I think House Republicans are going to be more inclined to focus on the oversight of big tech because it's an area where they can all agree rather than legislation, which will bring up, I think, the, some of those deeper divisions within the Republican conference. I mean, Jim Jordan, who is obviously no shrinking violet when it comes to, to oversight, he was speaking on the House floor late last year against a bill that was viewed by antitrust reform advocates as a very, very small, you know, incremental step forward just to raise the uh, the filing fee for big tech mergers on, under you know the Hart Scott Rodino Act it hadn't been hadn't been increased in, in a little while and, and this was seen as a, a a small step towards that and a and a bill on you know venue of state AG antitrust challenges. These were these were seen as as very small advances 
towards the anti reform agenda. Jim Jordan was, again, no, no friend of big tech uh, when it comes to the oversight side of the House, was, was speaking on the floor in opposition of those, of those measures. So I think, I think the legislative action in the House will prove difficult. And therefore, you know, Speaker McCarthy guarding a, a, narrow, a narrow majority will be more inclined to focus on, on the oversight side that, that unites this conference. But we'll see. Again, you know, there, there is still is an opportunity here, I think, given the, the broad bipartisan agreement that, that these companies have aggregated too much power and action needs to be taken to, to counter the, 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 the negative externalities of that power. That power. All right. Well, with that, let's let's pivot away from Congress and let's go to a, a really interesting news item that, that just arose recently, which is the SEC filing suit against Covington and Burling to try to compel the names of a number of clients of Covington that were implicated by a hack that occurred back in 2020. And so, David, why don't, why don't you explain a bit more about that one, which, which I find fascinating? Yes, me too. And for those who want to look at the long form, a, you know, something on the order of 21-page letter from Covington's lawyers at Gibson Dunn is available on the internet. And it's a delight. This is, you know, quite a powerhouse of uh, lawyers and clients here. But this comes out of the Hafnium hack, which was a PRC exploitation of vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange servers. I think it was disclosed by Microsoft in the spring, March, maybe of 2021. The hack here of Covington's servers occurred probably in, as you said, late 2020. And so when the disclosure emerged, Covington, I think, did a review and concluded that it probably had been hacked, which implicates some of the interests of and communications between Covington and its clients. And apparently there's around 300 of them that are both clients of Covington's and, you know, subject to SEC regulation, mostly because they trade in the public capital markets and possibly a few others who might be subject to broker-dealer regulation or whatever. And so the SEC subpoenaed Covington for the names of its 300-ish clients and all the communications between Covington and the clients about this hack. And you know, you can predict the result if you're a lawyer or if you hang around lawyers that, you know, (laughs) rule 1.6 of the DC rules of professional responsibility and and almost any other rule of professional responsibility in any jurisdiction would tell you you do not disclose attorney-client communications, you know, associated with getting legal advice like, oh, shit, what do we do because we've been hacked and, you know, anticipation of litigation that might ensue, I think, rightly uh, over, you know, what's going on here. So, you know, on the face of it, it's quite a bold move by the SEC. I mean, I think the way to understand this, and it will, you know, get litigated now in front of a judge and get sorted out, is the SEC is very, very concerned that, and has been for a while, that companies that have cybersecurity vulnerabilities, that get hacked, that have their data compromised in some way, you know, report the incident. And in the old days, you know, you would just report it maybe under the 8K materiality standard. And depending on the nature of the breach, the nature of the information in question, who stole it, for what purpose, whatever, you'd make a holistic determination of materiality. If it was material, you'd probably have an obligation to disclose fairly rapidly. I think early last year, the SEC, along with just about everybody who regulates anybody in the, in the world today, started uh, proposing new rules with stricter and more prescriptive and precise obligations around disclosure of cyber incidents. And we've seen, obviously, legislation 
with cyber incident reporting in certain situations, but a lot of regulatory agencies are imposing a patchwork of different requirements on different elements in the SEC, as I said, as part of that. They were also enforcing pretty aggressively, um, even in 2020 and 2021, around disclosure of cyber risk. So this subpoena is, I think, best seen as part of that SEC campaign around you know, investigating and mandating disclosure and rapid disclosure of cybersecurity risk. And so I think they want to find out, you know, how bad was it? And then what did the companies tell the capital markets based on what their lawyers had told them? But they run they run kind of headlong into these attorney-client protections. I assume something will get worked out or a judge will rule. But it is at a minimum, I think, I think a bold, a very bold move by the SEC to actually seek not just the client's identities, but the communications, apparently, between the lawyers and the clients. <laughs> I can just imagine what that hearing is going to be like. Yeah, I, be- I believe it's now been narrowed to the point where they just want the client Just the names, identities. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I that's where, that where right. it is. <laughs> yeah, I think in terms in the SEC's papers that they just filed last week, it's mm. just client names is what they're looking for. But it, in any event, it is still a pretty extraordinary step to go yeah. to um, to press for compliance with this this aspect of a subpoena to a law firm, one of the you know largest, uh, most well-known firms in D.C., if not the U.S., who is dealing with and advising all kinds of very high-profile clients and companies who might have public reporting requirements relating to their SEC obligations. And to, to really press on this, there's a couple of interesting wrinkles here that I just want to highlight, which is, you know, at one point, it seems that in, from the SEC's papers, again, that there was an emphasis on trying to get at whether there was any material non-public information that could have been, you know, exfiltrated via the hack that could have led to trading, you know, insider trading. And Covington apparently did their own analysis and the SEC didn't like that analysis or didn't like the methodology they used for the analysis. What a surprise. So they're... they're t- they're calling them out on that. That's one piece of it, which I find to be, you know, pretty pretty odd. And again, to your point, David, this is a, a pretty bold gambit to really press this issue, knowing full well who you're up against here, and that this thing is going to go, this thing's going up through the DC Circuit and all yep. the way, right? If this if this doesn't get resolved favorably for Covington and, and their clients, the other piece is that there's a big, you know, to to your point, this is a this was a PRC state sponsored hack that's well understood and acknowledged. So probably not undertaken principally for insider trading benefit. <laughs> right, right, and and we know we know that there can be you know there can be dual purposes that sometimes it's a an Intel op and a and an economic motive yeah. behind some of these yeah. hacks, but never. Nevertheless, that seems to be pretty clear that that's not the case here. And oh, by the way, Covington has been cooperating with the FBI, who never asked for this information. The Bureau never asked for the clients. Right, they right. have been cooperating. And and again, this gets into an issue that I know, you know, certainly during my time at DOJ was very sensitive and thereafter advising clients on this. It's sort of re-victimizing the victims of these cyber intrusions. And that's kind of what SEC is doing. And perhaps... They're not as sensitized to that as the Bureau or the Secret Service or some of these other entities. And so that's a fascinating dynamic here, too. I mean, I love the way you hold up the Bureau as the exemplar of sensitivity. Thank you for that. No, I mean, (laughs) I I, I think (laughs) so. Gensler, I think, knows exactly what he's doing, right? The SEC is is very aware of the controversy that this will, you know, produce and is producing. And I think they're, you know, loving it. I think they really want to highlight their aggressive enforcement posture around disclosure of cyber vulnerabilities. I mean, I do think the the point about the FBI is 
a good one in the sense that one of the pathologies, or maybe that's too strong a word, but one of the challenges that surrounds a whole bunch of cybersecurity activity to include incident reporting and disclosure, but across a whole variety of other fronts, is this idea that everybody has long supported, which is unity of effort within the federal government around the, the cyber field. And, you know, cyber activity and authority is widely dispersed across, you know, a bunch of different silos within the U.S. government. And so there's been, since the Obama administration, a call for unity of effort. From the perspective of a lot of private sector entities, I think there is not an evident unity of effort. There is instead the, you know, the usual kind of just multiple touch points, multiple engagements, not all consistent, sometimes maybe even a little bit of evident competition, God forbid, between government entities like, oh, no, just tell us, tell us, we'll make sure to backfill the other entity, the other agency. Don't worry about them. Just talk to us. And, you know, this is maybe exemplified by the idea that unity of effort is to be achieved by not just one, but by two senior White House cyber persons. That's Ann Neuberger and Chris Inglis. I mean, you know, as a method for achieving unity of effort, having two leaders, it's not maybe what you would have chosen a priori, but here we are. We have two superb people in the White House doing that. So I think there's a lot of, there is a, a legitimate point here that- But neither, neither of whom can, can remove Gary Gensler, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that's the, uh, that's the point. It feels to me like this is really SEC kind of doubling down on the turf that they're trying to stake out for themselves in this space, right? Yeah, as I said, he and knows exactly, I think they know exactly what they're doing at the SEC. It may be a and, good or bad idea, but they're not like shocked at the- uh, Yeah, and to your point, David, it is certainly, you know, to the- to the old adage that you know no publicity is bad publicity, this is certainly getting a lot of attention, and I, I'm sure we'll continue to get a lot of attention. And for filers, you know, it, in public companies, it will be something that's a talking point and something that gets brought up at board discussions and and all the rest of it, right? And so maybe that's maybe they've already won, and maybe if, even if maybe even if Covington prevails here, SEC's already won because of you know just sort of raising the profile on this issue to a degree that it wouldn't have been otherwise, and perhaps protecting that turf or, or even expanding it somewhat. So so it'll be fascinating to see. And obviously we're early days here. We haven't gotten a response yet from Covington in the DC, you know, federal court action, but this is one I'm sure that we'll be all keeping an eye on going forward and, and be fascinating to see where it all lands. One last thought there. You know, it, it is it is your, your last point is a great uh, illustration of I think the danger of giving you know, unchecked enforcement power to some of these regulatory agencies, because your, your point is Gary Gensler can win even if he loses, just because other public companies and other law firms will know that, you know, hey, he, he didn't he didn't prevail this time, but he might come after me with this very brazen enforcement action and force me to uh, spend a lot of money and take a lot of time and energy to defend against it. So isn't the easier thing just to you know, kind of go along with what the SEC wanted in the first place, even if uh, that might be legally dubious. And that, I think that that is dangerous for, you know, for, for, for our democratic system, but it, it is what aggressive regulators and sometimes sometimes achieve. Yeah, that's actually a good pivot to our next story. A crypto story that is not actually FTX related, although it is somewhat FTX related after all, is is the the settlement with Coinbase. And I think that was just announced by the New York Department of Financial Services about a week to ten days ago. And and to you know, to Michael's point, I think the the idea of regulators kind of making themselves feared and and making that enforcement threat real and either getting some deterrence or more compliance out of the regulated entities as a result is certainly, as we know, a, a 
a, a goal that we see time and again from from these entities. And and I think that this is a, a fascinating example here with Coinbase. And, and and this was covered pretty broadly in the in the Wall Street Journal and the Times and some other sources. But for those who, who didn't see this, there was a it was touted as a hundred million dollar resolution with Coinbase essentially for having inadequate AML, Bank Secrecy Act, KYC, customer due diligence, and transaction monitoring controls in place with regard to its customers, its accounts, its transactions. That was actually that $100 million resolution is really a $50 million penalty and a $50 million pledge to uh, invest in their own program, essentially, to increase and improve compliance in this area. And and I think in the Times piece in particular, the second paragraph of the story quickly pivots to FTX. And you might ask, well, why? And that's because I think there, I think there is a now a, at least a push on in some circles to sort of paint this as you know the the domino that has started to bring down the entire kind of crypto infrastructure. I don't. I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I think that, you know, a big player and a big platform like Coinbase, who, who has a public resolution of this sort and has to pay a big penalty and invest in their own program in this kind of a public way, in this kind of name and shamey type of way, is certainly something that's, you know, notable in its own right. But, but I think the thing that I that I came back to in, in looking at this when it first came up and looking at it in advance of the recording today was just sort of the banality of the whole thing when it kind of really comes down to it from from Coinbase's perspective, which is to say, you know, this is just rudimentary and basic compliance that that they are expected to be able to deploy and implement across their entity and with respect to their customers and with respect to the transactions that run through their platform. And you know, frankly, this is something that has been not just New York DFS, which, you know, hats off, they have been probably the most, you know, aggressive and forward leaning of the state regulators on this front, certainly, but very similar to what we've been seeing and hearing from FinCEN and from OFAC and from other regulators in this space for the last several years, which is essentially at core, hey, crypto and virtual currency players we are going to treat you like all other financial institutions. You are more like a bank than you think you are. And you better start behaving that way when it comes to compliance and when it comes to having processes and procedures and controls and infrastructure in place to deal with that. And that is, as somebody who advises on those issues, I mean, that is that is a flavor of discussion and a question and a you know a talking point that that I've certainly had with clients for years and will continue to be. And I think, again, you know, this is not to single out Coinbase. They happen to be sort of the big player here who got who got tagged with this penalty. I think this is going to be true industry-wide and seems to be true kind of industry-wide, whether you're a US-based player or certainly many of the non-US-based platforms may even be further behind on this front. In terms of just having very basic, you know, the very basic kind of tenets of a, of a maturing or mature financial services organization in place, to be able to deal with these types of regulatory and enforcement risks. And I think that's just something that we're, you know, again, the big players in the space have been sort of banging this drum for a while. I think this is another example of it. And, and we're going to continue to see more of this, I think, than they, in all likelihood, this sort of what people are, you know, deeming to be the kind of sky is falling scenario with FTX. All right. With that, I think we are now officially on to what I used to refer to on my old podcast as the China portion of the of the of the podcast, which which we had which we had basically every episode, regardless of whether we wanted to or not. And I think that's where we are now. And and for that to kick us off, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to Michael. There's been a lot of chatter in recent months about outbound foreign investment review 
and the, the various proposals that were kicking around Congress last year, the, the rumor of an executive order or the promise of an executive order that could be coming on this front, what has been referred to affectionately in my circle, certainly as reverse CFIUS or outbound CFIUS. And there was another report on this that just came out recently about perhaps the scope of an executive order as it is now maybe coming together in a bit more of a concrete way and some of the particulars there. So Michael, what's the latest on that and where do you see things heading? Well, the, the latest reporting is that the executive order that has long been rumored is being narrowed, uh, exactly in what way it's being narrowed or what it will still include in a reverse CFIUS or outbound investment construct is still a little unclear. As you note, there there was some legislative momentum last year behind a proposal that resulted in $10 million for Treasury and $10 million for Commerce and the Omnibus to study outbound investment proposals. So an acknowledgement by Congress that they still like something done, but that they realized that the other proposals, I think, weren't fully baked and needed a little more work. Um, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, comes out of this executive branch process that we are getting dribs and drabs of in the in the media. The reporting suggests that the, the White House is now consulting with allies and Treasury is consulting with allies and partners on the proposal, which on one hand suggests that it's fairly far along if they have a, a version that's sufficiently developed to share with allies. On, on the other hand, it also suggests that this process could take an awfully long time because uh, those kind of consultations can, can be very slow. And, you know, it obviously will be we've seen before from the Biden administration, they prefer deliberative processes that, you know, result in everyone being uh, in the same position, right? They, they seek consensus before they roll something out. So it might still be a, a while yet before we see any outbound investment executive order. Yeah, a couple of quick thoughts on that as well, which is, you know, it's cer- it certainly seems like scope here has been kind of drastically narrowed from what has been what was kind of being discussed or kicked about last year at various points to be sort of explicitly China focused perhaps and also in the in the reporting on this recently pointing to quantum computing AI semiconductors as really the you know the primary f- focus of of those restrictions in which case you know this would be really quite a bit more tailored than what was originally being debated or, or considered. And, you know, maybe one question to both of you is, you know, look, I think there's a long history of this outbound foreign investment review. You know, it was sort of part of the early discussions in FIRMA, and that got kind of scuttled in part because of strong opposition from industry and the arguments that this would stifle innovation and other things. And and I imagine we're going to see, and I and I'm aware of the fact that those same have headwinds continue to be out there with regard to anything that gets put in place here. So, you know, I guess one question would be sort of if this is all that comes of this, is that how much of an impact will that really have? Do we think there could still be time yet for perhaps another tack back that would open this up and, and broaden out perhaps the authority that that does get put in place? I mean, I would say the pressure here is going to remain for quite a while. And so, uh, like many conversations in Washington, D.C., that this one will not end ever, or at least not in the near term. And so, I I think it's a challenging thing. It's obviously been proven to be somewhat difficult, but, you know, it's going to, I think it's going to keep coming. And then there's going to be some event at some point that is either genuinely does or is used to highlight some shortfall 
and that will lead to expansion. Remember Dubai ports and so forth back in the day. So I, I think the conversation's not going to be over anytime soon. This is going to be a continuing, I see it as a continuing vexing challenge that won't remain stable for a while. That's right. And even in a narrower form, restricted only to, let's say, quantum computing, AI, and other advanced technologies, this is still going to be devilishly hard to implement. There are going to be a lot of very practical questions around implementation that will have to be worked through. And that's why I think this is still going to take take a little while to, to work out, even, even if the scope has been reduced to only certain critical technology sectors, even just defining what constitutes those critical technology sectors and you know whether particular investment is or is not related to artificial intelligence, for instance, may, may be very difficult to hash out. Not to mention the fact that, as you alluded to, Michael, with the the earmarks for you know Treasury and Commerce, I'm sure that there's going to be a little bit of a game internally among the agencies. Those two probably being the two most prominent about of hot potato in terms of who who it is that actually has to take this on take on this responsibility. You know, some of the legislative proposals last year, I think it was mostly focused on Commerce being the one that would have to take this on and have the sort of reverse CFIUS, you know responsibility or take the lead on that, be the chair on that. But I think this sort of bureaucratic infrastructure that would have to go along with that to the just to the to pile on to the the substantive nuance and questions, I think is also going to be very, very challenging to sort out here anytime soon. So with that, let's move on to part two of the China portion of the program, which is a recent item that may have sort of escaped notice, which came out, news of this just came out just before the holidays. And then there was a little, uh, another event that just happened last week, which is in the team telecom space with regard to FCC licensing. So for those who are sort of not as familiar, this is the, the setup whereby executive branch agencies on the national security side of the ledger, namely DOJ, DOD, and DHS, advise FCC on grants of licenses, certain types of licenses, and also potentially rescission of licenses. And perhaps foremost among those decisions ever taken by Team Telecom was the recommendation that they made back in 2020 to FCC to rescind the 214 license of China Telecom, which the FCC did act upon in 2021 and did in fact rescind China Telecom's license to operate under 214 here in the US. That was challenged in court by China Telecom. And in late December, just before the holidays, as I mentioned, the DC Circuit essentially affirmed the FCC's decision there with respect to the rescission of China Telecom's license. And the actually the public, the public filing of that decision only came out last week, which is part of the reason that this sort of spiked to my attention again. And and for anybody who's interested in this little pocket of the law, a fascinating read to the point that you know, David directed you to the, the the correspondence from Gibson Dunn on the Covington issue earlier. I think the DC Circuit opinion that was just released last week is a fascinating read. And and I would just note two things sort of for David and Michael to potentially chime in on. So number one, you know, my read of the outcome here is obviously a, a win for sort of deference to executive branch agency authority here. And that's that goes for the team telecom agencies who recommended the rescission and also obviously for FCC and acting upon that. And and there was sort of a side battle about reliance on classified, a classified record or an unclassified record that sort of ended up kind of being mooted out at, at the end of the day because the, the DC Circuit found that there was enough in the unclassified record to sustain the FCC's decision here. But in all events, I think clearly a, a win for executive branch authority. And and frankly, the first challenge of this kind, to my knowledge, of a team telecom action like this, I mean, 
licensed rescission is not a is not something to, that is taken lightly. And this was something, frankly, that was worked through for years by Team Telecom with FCC. And and it would have been a bit of a disaster, I think, to have this come out the other way. But so that's one piece of it. And the other is, I think, it, it, reading between the lines of, of many of the filings that the, the China Telecom made in challenging this action, they tried to por- portray the action as being rash or unsupported by the record or the facts or too speculative of the threat that was really in play here with regard to China Telecom and the fact that it's a state-owned entity operating the U.S. and the ability that they have to collect on U.S. persons and and engage in all sorts of other you know, misdeeds and mischief that would threaten U.S. national security. The D.C. Circuit really sort of dismissed that and said, you know what, we don't have to sit around and wait for these agencies to come to us with evidence of actual kind of cataclysmic events that have happened as a result of the license holder acting contrary to the national security interest. There is good grounds here for them to have acted the way that they did. And we're going to we're going to uphold that. So I think that those are two, you know, pretty big sort of takeaways from all of this. And and again, one that folks may not have seen, but I think in the grand scheme of things, especially as it relates to the the toolkit of of China-related authorities, I think, you know, a pretty big deal at the end of the day. Yeah, Brian, I agree. And I think that the, the one one aspect of this that isn't well appreciated is that, you know, as you mentioned, this was talked about for a long time. It was, it was, it was widely discussed, but action didn't start on this issue until DOJ's China initiative um, uh, with John Demers at the head of the National Security Division. And, and I think that's not widely appreciated that the China initiative, which has been caricatured in the press as you know, some sort of xenophobic witch hunt targeting Chinese American researchers was actually about a lot of, of other actions related to China and, and getting DOJ to take a more aggressive stance. I think the team telecom you know, actions are, are one, one facet of that. And, you know, for, again, for an issue that was talked about for a long time, it took, it took that China initiative to really gear it into motion. And I think it's a shame that the DOJ you know, took a, an opposite decision to rescind that initiative recently. I can certainly testify to the fact, as David may be able to as well, that this was the will to act on this was there well before the China Initiative at DOJ and other places. But you know, I I, I hear you on the timing of this, and I think there were a lot of a lot of parts and pieces that had to fall into place to make this all happen. Yeah, and I mean, I think first of all, I'm not a telecom lawyer. Although I do think the you know statutory authority is pretty broad here, so I think this result is probably broadly correct. But you know, over the Trump administration, the threat posed by the PRC here and by, you know, various affiliated entities in the, in the SIGINT space, I think did come into focus. And, you know, apart from the China initiative, there was an executive order that really put Team Telecom on, I think, a more formal and stronger footing. And I think, you know, that contributed as as well to this. And I you don't necessarily want Chinese affiliated, Chinese government affiliated entities providing cell phone service and, you know, uh, so I, I I do think you know this this is probably the almost surely the right result under the law and I think broadly speaking a, a you know to me at least a proper recognition of the of a genuine of a genuine concern. And with that, we will pivot to our last story, also China, and I'll turn to David on this one, which is this is a fascinating one, frankly, and one maybe that we can cover quickly, but relating to a New York Times article about. Chinese police outposts, including a FBI search that was done in New York recently, and and what that may mean. More yeah, this is a fun. Uh, this is a fun story. I don't. I'm not quite sure what to make. I mean, I have some ideas, but so yeah, China has what what some people call police stations in New York 
and elsewhere around the world. And amazingly, these Chinese police stations have, you know, garnered the attention of the U.S. actual police and are being looked at as such. And frankly, from a counterintelligence perspective, the, the PRC admits that these offices exist. So it's not as if it's some like secret thing that they deny. But they say, I guess, that they're staffed by volunteers who are there to help, you know, PRC residents or visitors, you know, manage difficult U.S. bureaucratic challenges like getting a driver's license or whatever. And, and you know, we've all <laughs> seen those kinds of challenges. So they almost act like an informal kind of a consulate or something. And there's a, there's a funny story here about a, a Chinese woman who was robbed, I think, in Budapest. And she went to the local police station and through what the New York Times quotes them as saying was negotiation and education. They got the robber to give the money back. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that negotiation and education. But, you know, so there may be some things they're doing. But the, the concern principally is that they may be being used for counterintelligence purposes and in particular to intimidate, coerce or pressure you know, dissidents or others who have fled China and, and to try to, you know, compel them or urge them to return to often to face, you know, possibly bad outcomes. And so I gather the Bureau took a raid inside one of these offices to get some stuff and look at it. I just think it's an interesting question. Like, what does it really mean to have a police station? You know, we have legats and law enforcement personnel all over the world. So it's not unprecedented, but usually they're officially declared and acknowledged and registered with the local authorities. And that's not really the case here. So it allows them to engage in various activities. And I think it appears our government would like to take a closer look at exactly what's going on. Yeah, I think that that final point is an important one, which is, you know, the idea of, you know, sort of undeclared sort of long arm law enforcement type activities or harassment that's going on in the US and other jurisdictions by by China and you know I think and this is referenced in the Times article but there's a there is this is of a piece in my view of, with the Operation Fox Hunt indictment from last year which led with a conspiracy and an 18 USC 951 charge which is you know acting as an agent of a foreign government without notification to the attorney general in the United States. That's the statute that, as David well knows, most commonly gets confused with FARA. Right, uh, it is exactly. Not FARA. It is, it is not, it is, disclaimer, it is not FARA. It is very different. It is, as I've described it and others have described it, sometimes referred to as espionage light because there is no, you know, classified or national defense information in play, but there are persons in the U.S. that are acting at the direction of a foreign power and have not declared to the attorney general that they're doing so. And and that can and that seems to me to be probably the the sort of point of that raid is to see if we have more of that going on at, at this location in New York. So it is kind of a fascinating one. And again, I, I think we, we may continue to see more of this as as you know, it, it appears to be kind of more brazen and more open. One final sort of fun detail that I that that's a great one from the article is the fact that it's reported that there were they were touting the fact on Chinese language websites at the various government outposts of of what these folks were doing in various places, including gathering intelligence, which is you know was translated apparently as such. And as soon as these things came down, those websites of course disappeared, and all of those claims disappeared. And now all of a, all of a sudden, there's no trace of those types of assertions being made by anybody back yeah, in China what do you know? any longer. Yeah, amazing how that works. Um, well, to, to, to bring us full circle, uh, this is exactly the kind of you know, facts that 
you know, if, if anyone in the IC is listening, you should be looking to see if you can declassify something where 702 helped disrupt this kind of Chinese <laughs> operation inside the U.S. Because it's a great, you know, a great potential example of somewhere where you know, this is a really important program. And if you don't have access to this kind of intel, you're not going to find out about uh, these kinds of nefarious Chinese activities. So. To tie it all together with a nice bow. Thank you, Michael. That's that's yeah. some lovely some lovely symmetry to the to the program. And with that, we will move to the the, the home stretch here. And, and we just have three quick hits and news updates. So I, I'll start and sticking with China actually to to go back to a topic that I've been on the pod to discuss in recent months, which is the the recent export controls that were put in place by BIS targeting the Chinese semiconductor industry back in October of last year. There's actually a really fresh hot off the presses update there, which is the fact that BIS just issued an interim final rule earlier today, just as we were hopping on the recording that extended that rule to cover Macau. Macau was not previously covered by the rule. Now it is Now it is covered. But really what I wanted to mention briefly was reporting in the last couple of weeks in Bloomberg, Politico, and some other places that gets into the sort of step two of the U.S. plan, which is to get close allies in key countries to get on board with implementing multilateral controls that are going to target China in the same way that the U.S. controls target China. And and for anybody who hasn't been following that, that is primarily Japan, South Korea, and the Netherlands, as they are the three countries that are home to the largest non-U.S. manufacturers of these types of this type of equipment that is relied upon by China and, and other others around the world. And the U.S. government made some bold claims right out of the gate that it was a, a fait accompli that all of these allies were going to get on board. We were going to have multilateral controls, and that was going to really put the squeeze on China. Well, lo and behold, here we are a few months later, and, and we're still working on it. It's not a done deal yet. There have been reports that things are close, Japan and the Netherlands in particular, but this is not just a national security interest for those countries. It's also an economic and business interest for these big companies. And so they're weighing all of those things. And you know, we shall see where it goes from here, but not a done deal yet. And I think hopefully resolution on this one way or the other in the coming weeks, but th- that is remains unresolved. And so with that, I will I will toss it to Michael to to pick up on an issue and a story that Stuart reported on, I believe on the last episode, and that's the Twitter files release. That's right. So yeah, last week, Stuart was going over with the panelists about the Twitter file releases showing the extent to which government officials browbeat Twitter to try to censor particular views on on the platform that we're now finding out about thanks to the document dump by Elon Musk to, to a few reporters. The most recent installment is showing that this extended to, we, we saw some before of, of Adam Schiff and House Intelligence Committee staff uh, asking Twitter to take down accounts. It turns out that their their playbook also was to you know, label any viewpoint that was critical of them, where they didn't didn't appreciate the you know at the time the um, Chairman Nunes's released the memo campaign as as Russian misinformation, which Twitter, to its credit, seems to have pushed back on and and seen through. But you know, really, there doesn't look to have been much basis for for ever asserting that these claims were Russian mis- misinformation in the first place, despite a lot of public pressure being put on Twitter and, and other social media platforms by by certain you know, f- officials in Congress. So I, I think it's an instructive uh, from the playbook that there of if, if you if you can try to cajole the social media platforms into censoring your opposition, you're, you're you know, as one Twitter executive said, if you give the mouse a cookie, well, ask, a glass, ask for a glass of milk. And this is an example of just that just that occurring. And Last but not least, uh, another another thread that Stuart certainly picked up on a while back, and 
I believe, at least at least in his own estimation, called this 100% correctly, which is the NSO spyware case that was in front of the Supreme Court. And this is the, the WhatsApp suit brought against NSO. And NSO tried to assert foreign sovereign immunity, even though it's a private entity. And that was dismissed. And so the WhatsApp suit is going to be able to continue against NSO. Foreign sovereign immunity does not extend to private actors in the in the manner that NSO asserted it, it did. And so again, hat tip to Stewart who called that one right. I think, frankly, you know, not not that surprising to me either that this suit's going to be allowed to continue. And so that just came down a couple of days ago as well. And and that that will that will carry on. With that, I think that's that's all we have. David, any final parting words here before we Brian, other than that I'm quite quite offended by your hat tip to Stuart at the end there. I, I really think that's inappropriate and we ought to be <laughs> going the other way in his absence. No, yeah. no, okay. not at all. <laughs> When when, Stu, when when Stuart decides to take the week off, he can hardly get a hat tip. Exactly. Yeah. Got to work for those hat tips. Yeah. We we will make we will make another gesture much more offensive to Stuart than I as, think as that's in instead. keeping with what he would want. So right? that is correct. That is correct. So we will all extend you know what and and salute Stuart here at the end. Well, thank you, Michael and David, for joining us. Do not forget to send questions, comments, and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Rate the show, leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. And for those missing Stuart, a special plug, there will be a bonus episode that will be posted later this week, so he is not far away from your hearts or ears, uh, so be on the lookout for that. This has been episode 437 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. You hear that, Stuart?